Paul is in front of thousands of Jews uh, in the temple courts. A riot had started the Ephesian Jews who were there, who were uh, antagonistic to Paul in Ephesus before he made the long journey to Jerusalem, had started a riot saying that he had brought Trophimus, one of the Gentiles, into the courts. And uh, it started a riot at that point. They took Paul, they drug him out of the temple, probably there in the, in the court of Israel, through the court of women, out into the court of the Gentiles, began to beat him there, we know. And there was a tribune, Cassius Livia, uh, Lysias, who was there. The tribune had 10 centurions under him, each of those with 100 men. So the, the tribune normally had 1,000 men under him. So he hears the ruckus. He calls some of the soldiers. They go down. They rescue Paul, and he's trying to find out what's going on. Everybody's screaming one thing, screaming something else. So he puts Paul in chains, hand and foot, and they have to carry him above their heads so that the crowds don't rip him apart. And he gets him up the steps of the Antonio Fortress, and Paul then speaks to him in Greek, and he's shocked because he thinks he's an Egyptian troublemaker. And he said, Egyptian, I'm a Jew, what are you talking about? But his Greek is so polished and so fluid that the tribune is shocked. He said, you speak Greek? So he says, I'm a citizen of Tarsus. And it's no insignificant city in Cilicia. I'm a, I'm a citizen there, grew up there. Can I address this crowd? The tribune, under the pressure of the Holy Spirit, no doubt, says, sure, go on. And Paul starts to speak to them uh, in Aramaic, or their form of Hebrew, form of Hebrew. And it's their native tongue, so they all settle down and begin to listen. And Paul then is giving his testimony to them, how he grew up in Jerusalem, born in Tarsus, it must have moved there with his family early. We know his sister, we're going to find out in the next chapter, and his nephew live in Jerusalem. So we're assuming that Paul's family moved there if he was as a young man or boy in the school of Gamaliel. And he mentions that specifically because he was the most respected teacher in regards to running the school. Certainly Nicodemus, one of the most respected, but... Uh, the Talmud says of Gamaliel that he's the grandson of Hillel. And it says, when Rabban Gamaliel died, the glory of the Torah ceased and the purity and separation died. That's how much they held Gamaliel in esteem. And Paul says, I grew up under him. I, I was in his school. No doubt they're all listening. They've settled down. And he says, you know, in regards to the Christians, I persecuted them to death. I was binding, delivering them in the prison, both men and women and so forth. And he says, look, the high priest knows this. There's many witnesses among the elders that know this. In fact, they gave me letters to go to Damascus to bring in the Christians. 
It said, it came to pass when I made my journey to Damascus, suddenly at noontime there shone from heaven a great light round about me. I fell to the ground. I heard a voice saying, Saul, Saul. When he relates to Felix, he tells us in the Hebrew tongue, Saul, Saul, why persecutest thou me? And I answered, who art thou, Lord? He said unto me, I am Jesus the Nazarene, whom thou persecutest. And they that were with me saw indeed the light and were afraid, but they heard not the voice. Back in chapter 9, he mentions they heard something, um, but they heard no diction. They didn't hear what was being said. Uh, They didn't hear the voice of the one who spake to me. And I said, what shall I do? Now notice, Lord, Paul's completely aware this is a divine visitation. And the Lord said unto me, now arise, go into Damascus, and there in Damascus it shall be told thee of all things which are appointed for thee. So so interesting, as we follow Paul, he outlines for us, you know, the, these encounters with the Lord. It's not like the Lord gives him the whole plan. You know, the, you know he doesn't say, all right, this is that. He says, all right, the first thing you need to do, you're calling me Lord, is just go, get up and go on into Damascus. Then when, when you do that, then I'll tell you the next thing you need to know. Sometimes we want to know everything. We want to know the whole blueprint Usually that's so we can decide whether we're going to agree with it or not, you know. But uh, he, he, the Lord says, go on, get up, go on to into Damascus. And when you're there, that's where you'll be to- told what has been appointed for thee. Appointed there is in the perfect tense. The idea is it has been appointed and stands appointed right now. And what that track for your life will be, will be communicated with you when you get into Damascus. Now, it's interesting, at this point, he's saying, Jesus appeared to me from heaven, which is telling this crowd that he is risen. He's not dead. He actually rose from the tomb. And and they're not freaking out. They're still listening because they were kind of tolerant of the Christians in Jerusalem who still were fellow Jews and the thing that this rides over, whether he brought a Gentile and desecrated the temple. So the things he's telling them so far, this Lord from heaven that spoke to me said, I am Jesus of Nazarene. They continue to listen. And he said, he go, told me, go into Damascus and then you'll know everything that's been appointed and stands appointed for you today. Paul. And he says, when I could not see... For the glory of that light, he said, I was then being led by the hand. This is not the entrance into Damascus he expected to make. He came with soldiers, temple guards, expected to to come in there like the king's king or something. He said at that point, being led by the hand like a child or like Samson, unable to see, being led by the hand of them, that were with me, I came into Damascus. Now he skips a lot of the details that are in chapter 9 where it outlines his conversion. 
because he's speaking specifically to the Jews. This is the most exciting audience Paul has ever had. Again, in Romans, different places, I wish I could be accursed you know, from God so that I could reach my own people. I, I, would, I would sacrifice myself to reach the Jews. And here they're all in front of them, thousands upon thousands upon thousands, not just the leadership and the Sanhedrin. And he says, the elders, you could attest for it, whoever the high priest was at that point in time, and all of the devout Jews that had come up to a mandatory feast, this is what he had longed for for so long. And he thought because all of these things were in his life, he would be the perfect one to do it. Now we're going to find out Jesus doesn't think that. But he was convinced then because of his credentials, he'd be perfect for the job. So he's led into Damascus by the hand and won Ananias. And look what he does. He said he's a devout man according to the law. Now, understand what he's saying to them. He's saying this person was devout. He was a devoted Jew, devoted to the law, having a good report, notice this, not of some, of all of the Jews which dwelt there. Now he's working them. He's softening them. You know, this, this one Ananias is the one who comes to me. He's devout. He, he's, he's a believer in Jesus, but he's devout according to the law of good report of all the Jews that were there. He came unto me and stood and said unto me, Brother Saul, that's an important introduction because he recognizes Paul has been saved. Brother Saul, receive thy sight. And the same hour, he said, I looked up upon him. The same hour. We don't, did it take a little while for his sight to return? It, it is not specific, but he says in that very hour when he said to me, receive that sight. He said, I looked up and I saw Ananias standing there. And he said, and he said, the God of our fathers hath chosen thee that thou shouldest. Now he tells him several things here. He's chosen you that you should, number one, know his will. Number two, to see that just one. Number three, to hear the voice of his mouth. And number four, then, to be his witness. So Paul's completely aware of all this remarkably. He says, he, he says, the God of our, he includes himself with the crowd there, the God of our fathers, Abraham, Isaac, and, and Jacob. He, they understand what he's saying here. And he said, he, the, the, Ananias said, he's chosen thee. And you, you, you read that, you think of John saying, Jesus said to his disciples, you have not chosen me, but I have chosen you. Paul, when he writes Ephesians, he says this, having predestinated us unto the adoption of children, he says, according, and that's according to how he has chosen us in him, before the foundation of the world, that we should be holy and without blame before him in love. So 
Paul, he says here, murdered the church, held men and women in the prison. With his resume, this is the last guy that anybody, like if he filled this out, hey, we're looking for a, a pastor to be on staff here, and he filled out his resume, it was murdered the church, held them off the prison, made them blaspheme the name of Jesus, hire that guy right away, you know. And what Paul is saying here when he writes this, that Ananias said, Paul, you're chosen of God. We just read that. But you think what that word chosen became to him, that when he writes to the Ephesians, he said, chosen from the foundation of the world. In the first chapter of Galatians, he said, from my mother's womb. And he's completely aware of the fact that here he was, you know, vehemently opposed to the church, doing all this. But all of that aside, God had chosen him and breaks into his life and reveals himself to him. And Ananias now saying, he said, the God of our fathers hath chosen thee that you should, number one, know his will. And yet knowing his will, he, he outlines that a bit because he didn't know his will back when God said, just go on in Damascus and then you'll find out all of the things that I've purposed, appointed for you that stand. There's a, there's a whole body uh, of, of truth relative to your life that stands appointed. It's been appointed and it stands that way. But Paul is getting it a day at a time and an interaction at a time with the Lord. You know, it's not like he has this much, you know, he he doesn't have a better Google Maps than we do spiritually. You know, he's renewed day by day, it tells us, as we look not at the things that are seen, the things that are not seen. He said, we were in Asia, we despaired of life itself. He didn't say that we thought about suicide. He said, but we despaired of life. I thought I'd rather depart and be with Christ and keep going through this. And yet there was this whole agenda appointed for him as there is for you and I. Jesus never loved Saul of Tarsus more than he loves you and I. And he, and he doesn't have, you know, Paul had a specific calling, but so does every one of us. And, and the Lord would be able to write that out as well. But he leads us a day at a time. You know, my pastor Chuck used to say, God's calling is a progressive revelation. If you will do every day what you feel the Lord is putting in your heart, you will end up in the middle of your calling. The shepherd is never dependent on the IQ of the sheep. That relieves a lot of pressure. If your heart is willing, he will lead you a day at a time. And if we will give him each day of our life, we will end up in the middle of our calling. It's a progressive revelation. And Paul would testify of the same thing. And, and that each one of us is chosen. He has a plan for each of our lives as well. And relative to our faithfulness to that and our loyalty to that, you know, then ultimately we are rewarded. But Paul says here, he's been chosen. The God of our fathers has chosen thee. 
here's part of his calling, that you should know his will. We, we know it through the word of God, that you should know his will, and Paul still needed daily guidance. Number two, that you should see that just one, which, which has happened to him, that you should see him, and that you should hear the voice of his mouth. So no doubt that sets Paul apart to be an apostle. He saw him. He heard with his ears the voice of Christ. Now, how many times did he see Jesus? We know he saw him when he appeared on the road to Damascus. He was outlining that here. And no doubt, obviously, that changes life. Paul's not saying there was an evolution in my life. He said there was a cataclysm. He said, it isn't as though I slowly warmed up to this Jesus idea. He said, no, I was hating in the other direction. And he said, there was a moment of cataclysm when he stepped into my life and told me, who, and I realized he's not dead, he's alive. And he said, Saul, Saul, why persecutest thou me? And that drastic change that took place in his life. And then still, beyond that, he's going to need that direction now. No doubt the Lord appeared to him there. He heard his voice. We kind of believe that when he was in uh, Lystra and he was stoned, it seems that he saw something of the Lord again at that point. Um, it says... It is not expedient for me, doubtless, to glory. I will come to visions and revelations of the Lord. I knew a man in Christ above 14 years ago, whether in the body I cannot tell or whether out of the body. So he has to speak in his own body. I cannot tell. God knoweth that such a one was caught up to the third heaven. So he saw there, no doubt. And I knew such a man, whether in the body or out of the body, I cannot tell. God knoweth how that he was caught up into paradise and he heard unspeakable words. They're unspeakable, unutterable. It would be un, uh, not lawful to try to speak these words, which it is not lawful for a man to utter. Of such a one I will glory. And it's interesting. Then he says there, in relative to that, because of the, the magnificence of the vision, what he saw, he said, there was given to me. Now that's one of the reasons we know it was him that caught up a thorn in the flesh and a messenger from Satan to buffet me. Now, in the language, those are two different things. It was given to Paul first a thorn in the flesh. Was that something that a residual from the stoning there at Lister? That seems to be the part where he says, I don't know whether I was dead alive, caught up to see the Lord in, in paradise, the third heaven. Or is it talking about when he writes to the Galatians, he has malaria, his eyes are bad, one thing or another, he bears in his body this illness of some type, a some type of infirmity. And he said, as though that wasn't bad enough, he said, I have a thorn in the flesh. And then he says, and besides that, a messenger of Satan to buffet me. And what he's telling us is, I had this difficulty, this physical infirmity. And besides that, I got some demon saying, 
how can you preach about God's love to people? How can you tell people God loves you? Look what's going on in your life. If God loved you, how come this way? Yeah, you're probably in sin. That's why you're sick. That's why you have this disease. And look, it's the same thing that happens to us. If we have infirmity, if we have some difficulty, we have some tough situation, we have some illness, how often do we think, oh yeah, the Lord's dealing with me. I, I knew I shouldn't have done this or doing that. We can so easily listen to the enemy. He says, but no, he said, you know, that was given to me so I wouldn't get puffed up about the revelations that I have. He said, because I sought the Lord three times over that with fasting. And he said, Paul, no, my grace is sufficient for thee. And he said, I have learned then rather to glory in my infirmities. I haven't learned that yet. I don't want to learn that lesson. But he says, you know, I've, I've come to realize in those difficult times, his grace is sufficient. So we know Paul saw the Lord on the road to Damascus. We know Paul saw the Lord in that circumstance, caught up to the third heavens. We know Paul is going to tell the Jews here that he was in Jerusalem and the Lord appeared to him there. We only get it in this address. That's a third time. And then when we get over into chapter 23, Paul's in prison at the end of the day, discouraged, and the Lord appears to him then again and, and says, Paul, you did good today. You're not done. You're going to go to Rome. He started a riot. He did good. I don't know. So that's at least four times the Lord appeared to him. And then he tells us in 2 Timothy, he said, All men forsook me, but the Lord stood with me. Did he see him then again? You know, and, and the Lord intervenes in certain times in his life, now specific ways because of his calling. But I find in my life, There have been times, not many, incredibly rare and very difficult to define, but there have been times when the Lord has drawn near and done things that have just kind of staggered me, maybe two or three times in 50 years. But the Lord is the same yesterday, today, and forever. And P Paul here says, you know, then Ananias said, he's chosen you that you should know his will, that you should see the just one, and that you should hear the voice of his mouth, for thou shalt be his witness unto all men of what thou hast seen and heard. These the ideas you're going to be preaching there is in Christ, and a witness to all men. Here we are tonight reading that testimony here he's being a witness to us this evening he says of what you have seen and heard it's interesting again the the scene there is in the imperfect tense it means what you have seen and continue to see and heard is just Eric's like statement of a fact and and what Ananias says what you've seen is going to burn in your heart for the rest of your life what you have seen and what you will continue to see so I imagine once Jesus appears to you that you never get that out of your mind, that it stays with you as long as you live. And he says, you're going to be a witness of that. You're going to see him. You've heard his voice. 
and you're going to be a witness. You're going to give testimony to all men. He's going to preach the resurrection of Jesus Christ, the good news of Jesus Christ. Look, all men, he's going to send them to the unsaved world. We have so many people in the church today with every message but this, psychology, prosperity, you know, coolness, wokeness, you know, social this and that. The, the, the guy that God sets out as an example to us, puts his testimony here and says, our testimony is the risen one, the living one. And that the message we have to take to a lost world is that Jesus Christ is alive, that he's died for our sins, he's risen, he's coming again. The gospel of Jesus Christ, what he accomplished on the cross, that's the message. And the more we get drawn into all these other things, the more that loses its point, that sword. Because look, we live in a hopeless world with nothing. Watch it. It's insane. Is it insane? Are you watching it? It's making me crazier and crazier. I try not to watch it. It's, it's like a first grade class has taken over the world. <laughs> and there's no hope out there. And if we're going to give to every man an answer in regards to the hope we have, it's directly attached to Christ, his work on the cross, his death, his resurrection, his return, and that we hear from him. We've seen him, not physically, but through the eyes of faith, we've seen him. The scripture speaks to us. It's alive to us. And, and people that are unsaved don't understand that, but they come. They're hopeless. They're listening they're looking for something. I pray there's a whole younger generation now that's tired of all the muck and the mire that's ready to hear hope, life, forgiveness, eternity, Jesus. I'm ready. And I hope that's stirring around us right now. I hope we're going to see that because it's almost like the Lord is shutting every other door for them, every other direction for them to look in to, to find an answer, to find out. Look, it was the same in my generation. It's all happening again. In my generation, it was wrapped around the, you know, the, the, all of the racial tensions were there. They came to life. In my generation, the economy was gone out the window. In my generation, everybody hated what was going on in Vietnam. In my generation, Kent State University, the National Guard used live ammunition and killed students who were protesting. In my generation, the whole thing was blown apart. And then there was the Jesus movement. The whole generation, immoral, taking drugs, sleeping around in public. And Jesus stepped into the middle of all of that because he loved all of those broken lives and all of those broken human beings. And he has not changed. And what we're seeing around us in the world today is either... Get ready, I'm coming tonight before you go to sleep. Or there's going to be one more awakening.
before I come. Either way, I'm good. But Paul said the whole appearance, the whole emphasis, the whole point of his calling is the one that he heard from, the one that he saw, the one that he's, to, he, he's got this calling to, to speak to all men, it says, of what he had seen and he heard. And now, why tarriest thou, Ananias speaking to him, verse 16, arise and be baptized and wash away thy sins, calling on the name of the Lord. Now, he, he doesn't wash away his sins being baptized, he said in 1 Corinthians. He said, I thank God, verse, well, I'll read it. It's easier. He said, I thank God that I baptized none of you but Crispus and Gaius, and lest any should say that I had baptized in mine own name. And I baptized also the household of Stephanus. Besides that, I know not whether I baptized any of you. So the thief on the cross, today you're going to be with me in paradise. He never got baptized. And Paul, the most zealous evangelist that ever lived, said, I thank God I baptized none of you. If baptism washed away our sins and saved us, Paul would have never said that. So what it's saying here, the structure, he says... He says, be baptized, wash away thy sins, calling on the name of the Lord. That's how it takes place. Calling on the name of the Lord. And it came to pass, he says, that when I was come again to Jerusalem, now he passes years there. Remember, he was in Damascus for a while. Then he went into Arabia you know, now he says, it came to pass that when I was come again, because he had been there once already, to Jerusalem, even while I prayed, and look what he's doing to his present audience, even while I prayed in the temple, all these Jews are completely listening, they're quiet. The temple, they're accusing him of desecrating. He said, no, as after Christ appears to me, I'm a believer. I came and prayed in this temple and then he says, I was in a trance, ecstasis, ecstasy, and I saw him. So this is, you know, at least the third time. Again, there's at least the fourth time in the next chapter, maybe the fifth time in, in Timothy. I was in a state of ecstasy, and I saw him saying unto me, make haste and get thee quickly out of Jerusalem, for they will not receive thy testimony concerning me. So usually when the Lord appears to you and says, make haste, you know what you do? You make haste, yeah. Paul argues with him. He says, they're not going to receive your testimony. Get out of here. And he said, and I said, Lord... Let's use some logic here. They know that I imprisoned and beat is, is flay in the Greek, to pull the skin off, that I imprisoned and flayed in every synagogue. Obviously, it, wasn't, it was synagogue after synagogue is the way it's in, in the language. Them that believed on the Lord. You're telling me to get out of Jerusalem? I'm the perfect guy. I was here. And he said, they know me. I went from synagogue to synagogue imprisoning people and, and ripping their skin off. He says, Lord, what do you mean get out? I'm the, I'm the man of the you know, power of, for the hour. You're, I'm the guy you want here. You're overlooking something here, Lord. 
You would think it would be enough if Jesus appears to you and says, get out of here. I'm saying, yes, Lord, I'm on my way. Paul said, well, maybe you're overlooking something. Did you ever think of this? And when the blood of thy martyr Stephen was shed, he said, I also was standing by consenting unto his death and kept the raiment of them that slew him, which the religious leaders, he said, I was there. They know that. I was so hated the Christians. I was consenting to the death of Stephen. And he said, and he said unto me, depart. So there's the argument. It's over. One word. No real dialogue. I said, Lord, did you ever think of this? And he said to me, get out. <laughs> he said unto me, depart, for I, and it's emphatic there, I, God says, I, even for myself, will send thee unto, now King James says the Gentiles, there's no article, so it's, it's the emphasis is I, the Holy One, I, even myself, will send thee unto Gentiles, plural, Gentiles. And when they gave, they gave him audience unto this word, it's very interesting, there's an article there where it says, they gave him audience unto this, the word, and the word was Gentiles, and then lifted up their voices and said, away with such a fellow, which means to put him to death, away with such a fellow from the earth, for it is not fit that he should live. This guy's wasting oxygen. Don't let him breathe one more time. You know, and, and here's Paul thinking, this is the perfect setup. I'm finally where I belong. You know, there's nobody better to give this testimony but me. And then when he mentions the word Gentiles, that God himself said he was going to send me to Gentiles, they said, that's all we can stand. We can't stand no more. They freak out, you know, and and they gave him audience until this specific word he used. Now, he had told him Jesus was risen. He had told him Jesus was his Lord. He had told him it was Jesus of Nazareth. And they're tolerating all of that until he says the word Gentiles, which they said were fuel for hell. They were presto logs. That's what they thought of Gentiles, that that's the purpose of them was to burn in hell. God's going to send me to Gentiles. And they gave him audience into this word, word. Then they lifted up their voices and said, away with such a fellow, which they had said about Christ, away with this one, John 19, different places, from the earth. For it is not fit that he should live. And as they cried out and cast off their clothes and threw dust in the air. Now, they didn't cast off their clothes don't, the way people might do that today. God knows where. Um, it's the same phrase used in member in chapter 758 when they came to stone Stephen. It says Paul stood there where they laid aside their garments. So they would take off their robes when they were going to stone someone. Here they are. They're, they're so carried away. It says they are taking off their robes. And because there's no stones on the Temple Mount, they're throwing dust in the air. And it says, And the chief captain, 
cast, uh, we're going to find out over in verse 23, Claudius Lysias, he's the tribune, the chief captain commanded him to be brought into the castle, the Antonio Fortress, and bade that he should be examined by scourging, that he might know wherefore they cried so against him. So he just says, that, that's it, I'll let this guy talk. He didn't know what he was saying because he's speaking in Aramaic. The whole thing's blown up again. This tribune knows if word gets back to his, to Felix, or to his you know, superiors, that he's going to be a lot in trouble that, because the Romans wouldn't put up with this for a minute. So he says, look, take him aside, examine him, literally by scourges, it's plural, not just by scourging, by scourges. And they cried, find out what's going on, that they're screaming about it. And it says in verse 25, as they bound him with thongs, the, the interest, it's interesting there, it literally says, as they were stretching him forward with thongs tied. So what they would do, they did it to Jesus. Remember, they scourged him. And the amazing thing is, it says in Isaiah 53, he, as, as a lamb before her shears is dumb, so he opened not his mouth. Because the scourging was a means of extracting information. When they had a criminal, like that's who he thinks Paul is here, he's going to scourge him, and they would either tie you to an upright pillar, they would tie you over a pillow, your arms and, and your hands and your feet tied to the ground, your back over the pillar. And sometimes they would pull you up in the air and you were hanging that way when they scourged you. But there was one Roman soldier on each side and they had the flagellum, which had had a handle and it had three, three leather thongs and then metal in those. So when they, they brought it across you, when they pulled it off, it ripped off flesh. And usually no time before someone was talking, telling, you know, who, who were the accomplices and whatever it was, what was going on. The amazing thing is they brought Jesus to Pilate and must have said he didn't open his mouth. As a lamb before her shears is done. And Jesus didn't give up any of the accomplices because that was you and me. And he didn't give up any names. And when they brought him back to Pilate, Pilate put him in front of the crowd and said, Ecce homo. Behold the man. The soldiers must have said, we have never seen anything like this. They laid it on him 39 times. They said to Pilate, we've never seen this. He didn't open his mouth. It just... And he presents him to the crowd, Ecce homo, behold the man. So Paul here, fellowship of his sufferings, if I may be made conformable to his death, he's in that situation, how interesting. And evidently they're stretching him now over the pillar, over a pillar, and they're going to scourge him with scourges that he might know wherefore he cried out against him. And as they stretched him forth with thongs, Paul said unto the centurion that stood by, Is it lawful 
for you to scourge a man that is a Roman and uncondemned. Um, Paul knew the law that it was not legal to scourge a Roman citizen. There was a, it was called a Porcian and Julian law. Both of those were B.C. before Christ. First, the Porcian law that basically said you couldn't chain a Roman citizen. You couldn't scourge a Roman citizen. You couldn't do anything to a Roman citizen until you proved the case of what took place. And then you weren't allowed to crucify a Roman citizen if, if there was a death sentence. You had to take off the head, which is what they did to Paul because he was a Roman citizen. If you scourged a Roman citizen, you were put to death. If you, if you beat him without, or chained him without hearing the accusation, you could lose your position. You could, you could lose your place. So he says, you know, is it lawful for you to do this? Because it's Porcian, and then a few years after that, uh, the, the, the other law, the Julian law, had stated this in Roman uh, culture. He said, is it lawful for you to do this to a Roman that's uncondemned? Now look, Paul is incredible in that he's Jewish in his heritage, his birth. He's Greek in his training. He's Roman in his citizenship. He is just really an interesting collection of things to be Christ's vessel in this lost Roman world. He said, is it lawful for you to scourge a man that is Roman and uncondemned? And when the centurion heard that, he went and told the chief captain, the tribune, saying, take heed what you're ready to do here, for this man is a Roman. Now, Paul waited. He didn't say that earlier. He wanted to get before the crowd. Now, is he just concerned about himself or is he concerned about himself and the centurion and the tribune? I don't know. I just know if I was in that situation, I'd have been yelling, I'm a Roman, I'm a Roman, I'm a Roman. I'd have let them know way sooner. Then it says the chief captain, this is then Claudius Lysias, he came and he said unto him, tell me, are you, and that's emphatic, are you, you, are you kidding me? You, are you a Roman? And he says, yay, he affirms, yay. Now, the tribune doesn't question him when he says that. And the reason is simple. Because anybody in the Roman Empire who lied about citizenship, who said they were a citizen and they weren't, they were killed immediately. So for, for Paul to be in front of tribunes and centurions and say, yes, I'm a Roman citizen, they don't even question it. He says, you, you're a Roman? He says, yay. And he says, the chief captain answered and said, well, with a great sum I obtained, I obtained the freedom that I have, my citizenship. Claudius's wife was notorious for taking bribes to have her husband grant citizenship to people. That's probably why he called himself Claudius Lysias after the Caesar that granted him citizenship. 
but because she was on the take, it was always with a great amount of money given. He says, with a great sum obtained I this freedom. And Paul said to him then, I was freeborn. I was born a citizen, which makes him superior to the tribune. Um, They were given a document called the Diploma Civitas Romania. And it was actually most of the time on a little, little wooden plaque. You would carry it, and it basically said in Latin, I am a Roman citizen. And when you had that, nobody would touch you. Now, we're not told whether Paul has that with him or not. But uh, he says, I was born a Roman citizen. I wasn't, uh, I didn't buy my freedom. And then straightway, they departed from him, which should have examined him, the centurion, those that were going to scourge him. And the chief captain, this is now, again, the tribune, also was afraid because back in chapter 21 it says he chained him hand and foot that was illegal for him to do and Paul didn't say anything then he chained him hand and foot so he's afraid after he knew that he was a Roman and because he had bound him that was back in 21 now on the next day on the morrow because he would have known the certainty whereof he was accused. Now, it's interesting. It's the tribune, Claudius Lysias, for him even to report this to Felix, his superior, he has to know the charges that are leveled against Paul, who's a Roman citizen, before he can take him into custody, before he can do anything. So now he's got Paul on his hands. He's already been chained. They almost scourged him. So it says the next day he decides to take Paul down to the Sanhedrin to hear what the accusations are. And in verse 30, it's all in the singular. It's very interesting. It says, on the morrow, and you can bet at this point in time, Paul's not uh, bound anymore. He's in protective custody because of crowds, but he's not in custody. He's not imprisoned. It says, on the morrow, because he, singular, Claudius Lysias, would have known the certainty whereof he was accused of the Jews, he loosed, singular again, he himself, the tribune now is handling with kid gloves, he loosed him from his bands, and he commanded the chief priests and all their counsel to appear. And he, singular, brought Paul down, and he set him before them. So this whole scene comes together now. And again, Paul's not complaining. Now he's going to get to talk. The crowds are gone. He's going to get to talk to the Sanhedrin now, of which he had been a member. And no doubt there are many there that were alive when Paul was a member of the Sanhedrin that still know him. So he's you know, he's being taken down. And, and of course, their problem is... Twofold, He said to Lysias, and Lysias said, well, I bought my citizenship at a great price. And, and Paul said, really, where I was, I was freeborn. And Lysias' problem is he was freeborn twice. He was freeborn as a Roman citizen, then he was born again, freeborn. And that second citizenship was at a great price. 
So now they, they got this guy on their hands who's Roman citizen and a heavenly citizen and won't keep quiet about any of it. So he's got him now. He brings him down to put him in front of the Sanhedrin because he's going to send him now to Felix, who's the, the governor now in Caesarea, because he needs to get Paul off of his hands because of the riots and all he's going to hear, hear then that there's a conspiracy to put him to death if that would happen to a Roman citizen under the care of Lysias, the, the tribune, he could be put to death. So after this all comes to to the light, he wants Paul all of, uh, off his hands and we're not going to be able to get to that this evening. Uh, Chapter 23, verse 1 says, And Paul earnestly beholding the council said, Men and brethren, I have lived in all good conscience before God until this day. That's how he starts out. And, and I, I wonder if Lysias said, do me a favor, would you speak in Greek this time so I know what in the world is going on, you know? Uh, so you, you have this interesting scene now. And this is within 12 years of Jerusalem being leveled by the Romans, 70 AD. And you think how remarkable it is. This group, Sanhedrin, had had Jesus give testimony before them. They have had Peter and John, when the man was healed, the cripple, give testimony before them. They drug the 12 in front of them then who gave testimony. Then Stephen stood in front of them and gave testimony. Now, Paul, this is at least the fifth time we know that the religious leadership in Jerusalem have had someone in front of them, Jesus being one, Peter and John then, then the 12, then Stephen with his face lit up like an angel, and now Paul of Tars, you know, Paul standing there, the apostle, they're not innocent. God is so gracious and so patient, it, you know, because it tells us many of the priests came to the faith. We know that if Joseph of Arimathea and Nicodemus came to the faith. God loves these men, and this is the fifth time he places in front of them an eyewitness, a testimony, someone to tell them this is all true. And of course, they're going to freak out. What do you expect? You know that we haven't got to 23 and you know what's going to happen. So I would say this evening, you know, going through this, look, Paul's going to think, I can't believe it. I had a chance to talk to the Sanhedrin. Everything blew up in my face. I've been here in Jerusalem. I don't know how many days I've started a riot. I've offended all the leadership. I almost got scourged. And Jesus is going to say to him, Paul, you did a good job. The thing that you wouldn't expect to hear. You know, sometimes with our families, if they're, you know, of another religious bent that calls itself Christianity or something, sometimes we witness, we blow the whole family out at Christmas or Thanksgiving or something, sometimes Easter, you know, we can get everybody mad with this. And you feel like, oh man, I blew it. And lots of times with your family, like with my family, they would bait me. Because once they said enough, they had the hook set. You know, I, I would pray before I went, Lord, keep me calm. 
Don't let, they're going to bait me. Don't let me even go there. But then just once I said something, then they would come back with something so smart alecky. And it wasn't in my nature then to say, oh, that's nice. And it was really, you know, you know, and sometimes you go home at the end of the day and say, Lord, I can't believe I blew. I can't believe I did it again. I can't believe I did that. And he's the same. If you listen closely, he might say, no, you did a good job today. You stood up for me. What could be wrong with that? You did a good job, you know. And I think we have to take that into consideration. I think it's wonderful to look at Paul and realize God kind of leaves him a day at a time. Paul wasn't the energizer bunny, and the day he got saved, he got his ever-ready batteries, and then he just went from there in. No, he needed to be renewed day by day. He needed to be spoken to. When he had a thorn in the flesh, he sought God three times, trying to get out from under it, and God would say, no, my grace is sufficient. Here he's saying you're chosen. You know, he tells him you need to go into you need to go into Damascus to hear the next thing, and then he tells him the next thing. Then he has to move to the next thing, and he shepherded through his whole experience till finally the Lord stands with him in front of Nero when all men forsook him. Imagine how painful that was. So it's interesting to see the Lord's leading here because we're all chosen. Paul tells us that. You and I, sitting here tonight, were chosen in him before the foundation of the world. And look, Paul talks about being chosen. He talks about predestination. And he is not worried about Calvin or Erasmus when he does that. He's not saying, oh, I can't say this. It's five-point Calvinism. They'll think I'll be confusing the whole church. No, no, no. He doesn't think any of that. He talks to this Ephesian church where he was three years that he loved so much. And he said, you've been chosen in him from the foundation of the world. And because of that, God looks down in you with joy, with delight, you know. And he says, he's given you the spirit, you know, uh, 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 of anticipation. He's coming for you. He says to the Romans, you know, you don't even know how to pray the way you should. But the spirit makes intercession, you know. And he said... And he said, all things work to good for those who are called, the called according to his purpose. And he said, you've been predestined. He does it the Romans too. He's not worried about some theological hack getting down his throat. Because those were truths. And those truths are for us. Martin Luther, before Calvin, said, who are these, in his facts, it's in his preface to Romans, and John Wesley was listening to someone in a public gathering in the street reading Luther's preface to Romans and got converted. But Luther said, who are these audacious young Christians who dare to soar the heights of election, predestination, total depravity, and so forth? He said, before they understand the flesh, temptation, warfare, Luther said, surely they must fall because there is a doctrine for every season in a man's life. That was before Calvin said anything. You know, so wonderful as we grow in Christ, these things become more real to us. Again, uh, I remember a younger pastor, pastor, Calvary Chapel, younger, uh, just thinking, Lord, I can't believe I, do, I keep messing up. I'm doing this. I'm selfish. I argue with my wife. Just, you know, just, and, and I'm in Peter where he says that, you know, 
according the, the, to his great and precious promises, we have become partakers of the divine nature, you know, and, and being set free from this world and so forth. And I remember reading, he said to me, you mean these promises were good enough for Peter? I said, well, yeah, he's writing about it. I said, were they good enough for John? I said, yeah. Good enough for Paul? I said, yeah. He said, not good enough for you? <laughs> and he busted me wonderfully. Tears flowed. He busted me wonderfully and just said, these great and precious promises are for you as much as they were for them. And God has chosen every one of you tonight as much as he had chosen Paul and John and Peter. And quite often he's going to say to us, go here, then I'll tell you the next thing. Go here, you know, because we're, we're accountable for what we know. So if God gives us the whole plan, then we can really blow it. If he only gives us a step at a time, we can only blow it one step at a time. You know, and because he's gracious and he loves us, he leads us that way like a shepherd, just a step at a time. But he has a calling on all of our lives and he has a purpose for us. And the adventure of it here is to find out what it is. We're close to the finish line. Let's run the last lap with all of our might. Amen. Amen. Let's stand. Let's pray. Lord, we, we bring our hearts before you. And Lord, these things, Lord, they're, they're lofty, they're beautiful, Lord. They're endearing to us. They're beyond just human comprehension. These are things that you give to us by your spirit and by your word, Lord. Things we'd have never dreamed of in regards to ourselves. And Lord, you save us. You bring us from darkness to light. And in that light, we hear these words, chosen foreordained, predestined, calling. Lord, th words we've never dreamed of or imagined but when we were in darkness. And Lord, we look around. There's so much darkness in the world. There's so much darkness around us. Your word is the same now as it was then. Lord, let us tonight we quietly pray before we go to bed. In the mornings when we do our devotions, Lord, let me, Lord, let us be more prone to fall to our knees than we've ever been. Lord, let us more than ever just be prone to bow and say, Lord, what is it today, Lord? What would you have me do, Lord? And use our... Lives that are useless without you, Lord. Use our lives redeemed and drawn to your heart. And Lord, you've chosen us and there's a purpose, Lord. Let us walk in those things, Lord. Lord, there's so much on social media and so much around us that begs our attention and our senses. And Lord Jesus, there's a, another dimension. There's another place, Lord, that we need to cultivate. You have to draw us there to hear, Lord, what is not on media, to hear what is spoken in a different way to our hearts, Lord. We pray you grant that for us. 
for all of us, Lord. Draw us closer, Lord Jesus. Draw us deeper. Draw us with your love and your grace. Draw us in a way we've never been drawn before, Lord. We look to you and we pray in your name. Amen.